Where did you like to play as a child? I ask this question a lot because childhood memories shape us into the people we become. Welcome to Play It Forward, a worthy podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Ritson. Thanks so much for joining me. I talk a lot about play. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm an educator, and I'm a playground designer. So I want to gather some of my favorite people who are advocates of children and nature and create a space to have an honest conversation about getting more kids outside. The power of play is very often underestimated and I think we all need a little more play in our lives. Welcome to another season of Play It Forward, the Worthy Podcast. It's season two. We're super excited for our guest today. But first, I have a special guest as well, our co-host today. Now, our co-host today is a driving force behind the scenes at Worthy, my partner in play, the mother to our two beautiful children, and the love of my life. We've got Vanessa Ritson here co-hosting. So, Vanessa, over to you. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast today. I really couldn't let this opportunity go by because the guest that we're speaking to today has impacted my life as a parent and also us as a family. Our guest is also a mother. She's a registered psychologist, parenting educator, best-selling author, international speaker, and a regularly invited media guest. She is the founder and director of the Wishing Star LaPointe Developmental Clinic and has been supporting families and children for almost 20 years. Her passion is in walking alongside parents, teachers, care providers and other big people to really see the world through the child's eyes. Today, we are going to talk about how we can support our children in their well-being, being resilient with change and how we can guide children in the changing world. Please welcome to the studio the incredible Dr. Vanessa LaPointe. Wow, thank you. Golf clap. (laughs) Awesome. Let's get straight to it. The question we ask all guests and start all podcasts with is, where did you like to play as a child? Mm, I had the most magical childhood. My family uh, was running a recreational property for our church which meant that I had a stable full of 25 horses at my disposal at any given time. I would get up and head out the door in the morning as young as age five, and I would run out, grab a horse. I wouldn't even saddle them up. And I would, I rode everywhere. I rode through rivers. I remember getting trapped in fields with like a giant bull cornering us in the corner of the field and trying to have to figure out with my sisters how we were going to get out of this find. And so I had this very kind of free flowing um, childhood. I actually thought for two or three years that I possibly was the reincarnation of Laura Ingalls Wilder. My <laughs> mom even sewed me a bonnet and a skirt so that I could play it full out. <laughs> it so- sounds amazing. Um, so how do you think that shaped and contributes to you as an adult now and the avenue that you've decided to dedicate your life to? You know, I think there's something about uh, free play and free play out in nature where there aren't a lot of restrictions. We, in present day environment, have, you know, placed so many boundaries around what play is. And I didn't experience boundaried play. I just went and I got to be who I was as a little person, which meant that there were moments where 
you know, that probably wasn't so great that we were in a field with a bull, a bunch of little kids trying to figure out how to really save our lives. And there's a tenacity and a, a resilience and a belief in ability and self that comes with having navigated the terrain of those challenges made possible by living in the world of free play. Yeah, that's amazing. Awesome. I mean, you've mentioned just now that, you know, boundaries is something that you've really observed as, as changed because we know that today children are living in a very different world. And the last 20 years that you've been working in your field of expertise, are there other major changes that you've seen in the childhood experience? Mm. The access to free play has um, substantially eroded. And um, instead, in its place, we've seen what we call play, but it's not actually play. It's very structured. Mm. It's adult-led. There's an outcome associated with it. We yes. do this to get this, right? Rather than just, just being. Uh, when a child gets to exist in a space of boredom, not entertainment, but boredom, the world becomes quiet enough that they get to hear themselves and they get to become their their own person. They get to figure out what that's all about. Um, and so as the, the scope of play or what we call play has become increasingly narrowed and kids at younger and younger ages are forced into structured activities yes. in order to build up the resume to get into the school and all of these kinds of things. Um, we, we've seen that big shift happen and we also see the very devastating impact that has on the developing brain, on the developing sense of self. Peter Gray, who I'm sure you guys know, um, you know, as our access to play has decreased, we've seen a commensurate increase in the emergence of mental health issues in our growing children. And so all of this is swirling around in present day um, and um, I think is at the epicenter of where change needs to happen for our kids to be okay. Absolutely. And I suppose the one thing that stands out for me is I think, you know, what you've expressed, we understand that. But I would say that there's a real deficit out there in terms of that being common knowledge. I'm wondering if that's something that you're experiencing as well when you meet with parents and that you're, you're speaking at industry events. Is this new information or is there a bit of a sense that we have a tipping, we're at a tipping point where people are waking up to, to what's actually going on for our children today? You know, I don't think any of us ever wake up when the invitation comes until that wake up call gets so loud that it has dropped us to our knees. And we're on the precipice of that. Uh, even as um, recently as 10 years ago, the mental health epidemic was yeah. about one in five children on any given day in my uh, area of the world were wandering around clinically symptomatic, meaning their symptoms were significant enough that they would be diagnosed with a mental health issue were somebody to have assessed them on that day. Fast forward to present day, the number has swelled to one in three. So we are very shortly, yeah. if haven't already, about to land on our knees and we get to receive the invitation if we want it. From where I stand, the switch, how we how we change over to a direction that's um, going to be so much better for our young is to shift from being fear-based in the way that we are child raising to being loved-based. 
love-based in the way that we are child raising. The fear-based is like, we have to do it this way and they have to be in this program and they have to be friends with this many kids and they have to, you know, A, B, C, X, Y, Z so that everything will be fine and they can live a good life, <laughs> right? And what about the force of nature? What about the power of development that has existed for all of time? What about just having mad respect for how insanely amazing that is all on its own and getting behind that rather than feeling like you have to be in front of it and driving it. And um, what's some of the techniques you use? Say the hypothetical, um, you have a family come in, they're completely um, void of this view of freedom and then more of coming from that parenting framework of the entertainer of the organizer the event planner even mm -hmm. how what are some strategies you use to get them into the love-based mode and the being versus doing so one of the things that i'll lead with because i know it's um it's about making it safe enough for them to see it that way i'll say to them you're working way too hard this is not what it is to raise a child. We don't have to entertain and we don't have to hyper schedule and have in every program and all of those kinds of things. We can dial this way back and just give everybody an opportunity to rest and breathe and let's see what happens. And then it's about, um, it's about shortening the radius. It's about creating a life that's a lot more simple. It's about making sure you have long stretches of unstructured time um, so that when the inspiration hits to play, you, yeah. you've um, developed a routine around that where your child gets to land there. And it's not, you know, every time they have free time doesn't mean they're gonna be super inspired to play a certain way or, uh, uh, or down a certain path. And so we have to create lots of opportunity for that. And then as parents, just sit in it. And one of the lines that I give to um, parents that I work with is I say to them, when your children come to you and say, I'm bored, just say back to them, I love bored. Bored is so epic, right? And be prepared as a parent because you are going to be swimming upstream. This is not the way that the dominant pop culture of child raising is doing things mm -hmm. right now. So be prepared as a parent to be uncomfortable with that, right? Yeah. And to have the finger wagged in your face a few times about how you need to get on it with your kids. And then sit back and observe the miracle of nature and the force that is child development at work. It's I double dog dare you to get in the way of it. It yeah. is that much yeah. of a force. Yeah. And you mentioned their time. Like, <laughs> For me, my observation, time is one of the most critical things that's impacting our children. It's the lack of it as a family, lack of mm -hmm. honouring the childhood experience with time. So maybe you could talk to, from your point of view, why you mentioned time and it's so being so important. In this fear-based mentality, we become very attached to the form and the hoped-for outcomes of childhood. So we think that it has to be done a certain way for our children to be okay. We think that they have to be in sports activities and in academic activities and, you know, all of these different things for it to go okay. And if we're not doing that, we're not keeping up. And then you see what happens is you give away the time 
to all of these things that actually have no business button their heads into the world, especially of early childhood. And we become stressed and frantic in all of that. As human beings, we're meant to breathe. We're meant to have space and time. Uh, we're not meant to live in this kind of stressed state. And then um, you're kind of double downing because you have on the one hand, a, a child in a family unit who are at the effect of all of the stress of the demands on the time. And then you don't have the outlet of play, which would actually be where we would go to process a release of all of that stress. And so in the face of those two dynamics, we have families who are literally sinking under the intensity of um, the modern day world, you know, really intruding on childhood and interrupting the way that to go. Mm -hmm. Time is everything. We have to create it and honor it and for it so that we can have that kind of a life for ourselves and also for our children. Absolutely. And, you know, obviously as a psychologist, what are some of the attributes or challenges that the child themselves are, f are facing in their day-to-day -day when they are restricted of this time? Or what do you see parents come to you regularly and say, these are the problems that I'm having or these are the challenges that I'm having with my child? What are the, the signs or symptoms that are, that are commonly seen when this is the case in a family structure? So you will see children who are dysregulated, um, emotionally speaking. And, and the symptoms around that are going to be that a parent will call in and they won't say, I think my child's dysregulated because of a lack of play and an overexposure to screens. <laughs> Usually they call in and they're like, my kid is driving me crazy. They never listen to anything I say. They're always on their siblings and being aggressive. Or they'll say things like, my child is struggling with sleep. My child has become reactive to every single food that they're eating. You can feel the sensitivity mm -hmm. in the child's system rising. Um, and so th there'll be these kinds of markers that reveal underneath all of that, actually a child who is incredibly stressed, very dysregulated. Um, and then we get to get to work on, you know, what's underneath all of that. It's not about making the child conform as much as it is about setting the child uh, up in a world that works for them and not against them. I'll tell you a story. When my um, son was three, uh, he got very, very sick and he had asthma. And so the combination of having this, um, you know, respiratory virus and his asthma meant that we were rushing to the hospital as he turned blue. And it was a terrifying experience for him, uh, just as much as it was uh, for me to be watching my sweet little boy and all of that distress. Uh, he hated being at the hospital. He was in complete emotional dysregulation around the event. And eventually we got to go home. And the first day that we were at home, I had just... Um, ducked down the hall to grab a basket of laundry to fold in his room where he was playing. And I came back in and he had set up a hospital bed with his little teddy bear and all of these little things that he was using as um, medicine, uh, which he called poison. Um, and, you know, he had this whole thing. He did the all of the triage that they do when you first get to the hospital, asking all the questions and taking the blood pressure and all of the things. And then he was acting out in play. Uh, you know, getting the medicine and in the world of play, his teddy bear was this sick little boy and he was the doctor. Mm. He was 
the one that was going to save the day. He got to feel through replaying that experience over and over again, this sense of empowerment. What if he'd never been able to access that? What if he'd never been able to, you know, play that through and make sense of it and feel in charge of it and get it sorted out? He already was an incredibly sensitive little boy. Imagine how it would have lived in. And now take that one experience and multiply that by all of the things that our children live through, especially right now. And imagine how the stress builds when they don't have access to the world of play. Play is their language. It's how they make sense of life. Yeah, and it's all well and good as and, and well-intentioned as parents and caretakers to try to explain these things out and talk about feelings. But I think there's a huge disconnect in this adult mind between the intangible explanations to a child and then making an actual tangible experience. We do it so often and you wonder why we get little blank looks on their face when we're describing these big concepts without any contacts of sensory feedback of that mm-hmm. agency. So do you use that type of um, approach in your practice as well? Yeah, so we do a lot of therapy through play, especially for children who've experienced traumatic things. Uh, we have gorgeous um, sand trays that we work in and, um, you know, all sorts of different things that kids can use to recreate their lived experience in the play frame. And when kids are in their play frame, they they know that they're in that frame for starters. And they also are able to kind of wander around issues and look at them from, um, you know, multiple angles in order to be able to make sense of what it is that's happened for them. So we play is a very central part of how we work with children. So much so that if you're a young child, um, the only circumstances under which we would work with you directly in the clinic is through play. There is no other medium that yeah. makes sense to children. Love That's it. Beautiful. I think I mentioned we have two children. They're four and six. And we're starting to hear from other families that we know whose children are receiving developmental diagnoses such as ADHD and ASD. Do you have any tips for parents who might be taking the steps through this journey and also Mm -hmm. as friends, how can we support them? Yeah. You know, it's an interesting thing to get kind of diagnostic and prescriptive about the journey of child development. And I am constantly at odds within myself about that because I write reports that, you know, offer those diagnoses on a regular kind of basis. And yet I'm not always so convinced that I believe that they're true. So I know that we work within systems where sometimes um, we go that route because we know that that's going to mean advocacy and being able to get services in place. And yet when I sit back and I think about, you know, what is it that children need for their world to go around? And then I think about what kind of world are a lot of our children growing up in? Of course they look like they have ADHD. And of course they look autistic because they haven't actually had the building blocks available to them in order to have that go any other way. So my number one message to parents always is, you are the expert on your child. So so if you have any part of your gut instinct flaring up around all of this, get very still and listen to that. 
And there ain't nobody that's expert on your kid like you are. So your voice is the biggest and your voice is truly the only voice that matters at the end of the day. The other piece is when parents are on that diagnostic journey to really be thinking during those um, uh, days and weeks and sometimes months that you sit on wait list, how's the world set up for my kid right now? What's their screen time exposure like? Have I really made sure that I've got that under control? What is their green time exposure like? Are we really getting outside and in nature in the way that we are meant to do that? What about the pace of life? Is that set up for them? Do they have enough free time to be able to catch their breath and rest into the world of play or whatever it is? What does it look like within my family dynamic? Do we have enough time as a family to be in relationship at rest with each other? And if there's anything amiss in any of those areas, do that first. So get that all sorted out and under control and ride that out for a little while and see if you notice changes in your child because those changes can be so stunningly significant uh, in terms of how the child will then present. They go from looking like a child who, you know, clinically could meet criteria for many of those kinds of diagnoses to a child who just looks like exactly what a four-year-old or a five-year-old or a six-year-old is meant to look like. Yeah, and just as an extension on that, has our perception of what a four-year-old should be changed in the last 20 yes. years, you know? Absolutely. And it goes back to that fear-based versus love-based. Because if your four-year-old's going to head off to bricks and mortar school uh, as a five-year-old and be successful in that classroom with all those other kids, and you uh, haven't had them in a zillion different you know, structured preschool kinds of activities and, you know, where they're figuring out how to fit into that kind of a mold, um, then, then you're, you're going to be panicked about that. And so it, it starts to sort of encroach upon how it is that we are behaving and setting up life for kids because we feel like we've got to get them ready for that school experience. And, you know, there, there are countries around the world who are light years ahead of us in that respect. They don't send their kids to school at age four and age five because they know better. <laughs> Absolutely. Definitely. It's something that we talk about quite a lot. And, you know, the school year has just begun here in Australia. And, you know, I think it's week three or four at the moment. And there's definitely some tears around at drop off. And, you know, a lot of families are just feeling that tension at home as kids are getting settled in to getting back into the school year. And, you know, would you recommend or have any recommendations to parents, teachers or educators to best support children during those transition times? Yeah. So the bottom line is connection. Connection is everything uh, from sunup to sundown and even while they're sleeping. So you can imagine for a child when they leave in the morning and say goodbye to their parent, they're away from them all day long. Uh, and they have to, you know, manage their P's and Q's and follow the rules and behave and do all of the things, which is a lot of demand on a little person. And then the parent comes and picks them up and they've been away from you the whole day and had to endure all of this the whole day. And so they're, they'll be so relieved to fall into your arms. And then five hot seconds later, they are having what I call the after school meltdown. 
where they're like, and my lunch was terrible and I don't want to go to that stupid park and I don't want to sit beside my stupid brother. And, you know, they're, they're in, their, in their stuff around the reaction to the day. So the antidote to all of that, if you have children who are stressed to be at school or who appear stressed after school, is to make sure that you are infusing life with as much connectedness as possible. Wake up a little bit earlier every morning so that you get a few moments in the morning to fill up their connection cup before you're sending them out for the day. Figure out how to be with them when you are not with them. So stories like the invisible string and the kissing hand and all of this kind of stuff so that you send yourself to school with them. I had one little boy who um, would wear a lanyard around his neck hanging off the end of it was a picture of he with his mom and dad loving on him and his daddy would spritz the lanyard with his cologne and he just tucked it inside his shirt so he could like sniff his dad all day long and uh, when he was really needing it he could pull that picture out and have a have a look at them and be reminded that they're always with him um, when you pick them up from school make sure there's huge invitations you're not on your phone. You're not distracted by other things. They get to just melt into you. Create invitation for the meltdown if it needs to happen. Know that it's a release, that they've been waiting all day long to have that release, and they've just got to get it out of their systems. And then have your evening time. Um, connected meal times is an important thing, and also a bedtime routine that's full of rich connection as well. In terms of educators, Let's set the day up to work for kids and not against kids. Let's, you know, I hear all the time about kids, do you call it recess in Australia when they get to go outside and run around for a little bit and come back in, where kids are, are punished by having recess taken away. Go the other direction. Extra recesses. You're having a hard day, more recess time, yeah. right? Because we want to let them uh, move their bodies, regulate, be outside. And as much as you can as an educator, make sure your classroom is full of connection. So they don't ever have to work to earn your approval. They just get it regardless. Nice. And you mentioned multiple times there, obviously connection, but green time, outdoors, nature, why is that so important from your point of view in your words? You know, yeah, there's something about being out in nature that, that connects us with the earth and connects us with where it is that we're from. And we know scientifically, um, I'm about to talk myself out of a job here, <laughs> that actually the, the two things that have the biggest impact in terms of reducing anxiety, being outside in nature, and moving your body more powerful than any counseling intervention that's ever been studied and so there is something about being um outdoors that reconnects us i think with the truth of who we are and young children know it they know it to that we have it socialized out of us as big people but young children know it to the core of their being they are most themselves when they are outside and in the world of play I would say a lot of parents recognise that need to move, but then I think it falls back into those structured activities. You mentioned structured, structured activities earlier on when we were talking. In your words, what, how would you describe a structured activity or what are some examples of structured activities? So structured activities are anything that are adult-led um, and anything that have an outcome attached to them. So play can't ever be for keeps. 
play has to be just because. And there can't be any goal, any process, any kind of um, rigidity around what play is. Otherwise, it's not play. It's become structured and it's adult-led on some level. So we want for children to, to exist in the world of free play, where they just get to go and see what comes. Beautiful. Nice. And what about um, that, even the passive-led structure? Like, let's go to a park. Yes, it's outdoors, but then it's like climb here, slide here. Would that – what's your view on that? Well, you could probably tell by my facial expression as I (laughs) scrunched up my nose. You know, what we call parks for our children compared to – where children actually want to and need to be playing are very different things depending on where you are in the world. And I know because I've toured some playgrounds in Australia with Maggie Dent, um, some of the brilliant work that you guys have going on over there in terms of, um, you know, incredible outdoor spaces that kids get to go and engage in risky play, uh, get to discover their, uh, their confident selves and, you know, have little places to hide in and places to climb, I, all the, the different kinds of things. To go back to that concept of structure and rigidity, a lot of our playgrounds are structured and rigid. Mm. So, slide here. You can't do it that way. You must do it this way. There's no going up the slide, only coming down the slide, you know, climb here, but only, only this way. And only where the railing is, you know, like that's not, that's not free play. That's, you know, uh, a playground with, um, bright primary colors splashed all over it. Um, in mimicry of what true play is meant to be for children. Yeah. Like, the development of the park way back when was to create play opportunities for inner city, ch- inner city children that replicated the experiences they'd have in nature. And now we've mm-hmm. got access to nature in a lot of circumstance, yet we're still mimicking it through a playground. <laughs> it's just <laughs> cracks me up, cracks me up. Anyway. We're catching up though. And I'm not dismissing playgrounds. I would be putting myself out of a job as well because we – design and build playgrounds but right. all we're highlighting is it needs to be that balance of both and and making it accessible um, to families but also honoring the child to say create something have the opportunity to put your imprint and have your ownership yeah yeah and we love risky play we uh, demonstrate this a lot in our in our playgrounds and what Lucas teaches to educators and it's something that you know we always talk about and what Worthy was really founded on is you know that those experiences as a child to be able to overcome challenges for themselves to understand what it feels like to fall and to get up again these are real life experiences mm-hmm. so I'm wondering if if you can also help elaborate on this is there a connection that you see between those experiences as children into becoming resilient adults absolutely where there's no opportunity for challenge you completely extinguish the potential for growth so you you have to struggle in it and not that we need to hold kids heads Uh, beneath water, but to allow them to stretch a little bit, to get out of the comfort zone and to be like, oh, check it out. I just did that. (laughs) And then develop internally a belief about self that I can do that, 
that I am able, we hear so much about growth mindset. And yet when we are uh, not allowing for that kind of play to exist, that unstructured, risky, free kind of play, it's as though we've become kind of the helicopter parent that's zooming all around. And then children never get the chance to stretch. They don't see themselves as capable. They can't connect with the concept of courage because they've never experienced it. And so we do have to allow for there to be this um, uh, zone of, uh, I call it stretch. So it's being outside the comfort zone into the stretch zone, but not necessarily in the panic zone. And I think, you know, when we're in that world where you've hit that sweet spot in terms of free play um, for children, they, they get to very routinely ebb and flow into their stretch zone. And then they figure it out. I'm resilient. I can do this. I got this. I love That's that. Amazing. I can do this. Yeah. After you, sorry to jump no, in no. there. I'm so glad you mentioned courage there because it's something we've been working with educators and families with to, because there's this disconnect between communities perception of risk and it's something to be avoided and you know you're doing risk assessments on work sites and in job sites and it's all like no avoid it a near miss is a tragedy um but we're starting to use the the verbiage around courageous play and that's yeah. where we develop courage and you just see it click in families and it's like oh incident report he fell over during courageous play they're like <laughs> oh yeah but if I come in there and go, hey, um, it was engaging in risky play, the mind blows and yeah, it gets messy. So from one that. is fear based, <laughs> yeah. one is love based. Yeah. And that comes <laughs> into the reaction fair. versus response. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember being a doctoral student um, back in the day, and I don't know how I ended up at this lecture, but they were, um, I think they called themselves playground architects. They were um, from the School of Architecture and they were presenting this lecture on like how playgrounds can be optimally designed to support, um, you know, the natural development of children. And I remember sitting through the whole thing thinking, I can't even believe this is this is like a whole field of study. I was completely mesmerized by the idea of what can go into the design of uh, playgrounds in the supportive child development and all of the layers and all of that it's um it's brilliant work and how wonderful that you're doing that yeah and that's the, to, trying to put the child at the center of that experience first and foremost for us at worthy is a priority not putting our design hats on and this will be cool and i can get this, this is really effective and efficient there's no liability like <laughs> every time we take a step down that road we're standing yeah. in front of the child once again. We're yeah. like, no, move to the side. We've got this for you. <laughs> move to the side. We've got this for you. And then that's why we end up going down that loose parts play container route yeah. as well as that combination. It goes, have an imprint. This meets you where you're at. Yeah. Do you guys know who Teacher Tom is? Yes. He's been on the yeah. podcast as <laughs> well. He's awesome. All the way from Seattle on your side of the coast there. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I was in Seattle a year and a half ago and uh, had no idea that I had booked an Airbnb in Teacher Tom's neighborhood where the cooperative preschool is based that he's been a teacher at for so many years. And we were walking down the street and I we came upon uh, like a church to which there was attached, I mean, to the um, 
uh, naive observer, it looked like a junkyard. And I was like, hold on a second. This is teacher Tom's uh, schoolyard. This is where it all goes down. So this, you know, this concept of what is a playground and, um, and what is it about those spaces that nurtures child development? Absolutely. You know, it's accessibility. What is accessible to the child for them to explore and to create? And, you know, we just were talking before we started that it's been snowing where you are in, in Vancouver. And, you know, I'd imagine that there's some limitations for families who live in colder climates where there's snow. I mean, the, but there's also possibilities that exist for children in those environments, which for the majority of Australia, we don't have that opportunity oh, to yeah. play in snow. And a snow day where you get to just like head outside. I remember when I was a kid, the snow would drift over our vehicles. Like they would be completely buried. So there was a lot of snow. We'd be snowed into our homes sometimes for days. And um, as soon as it warmed up enough that it wasn't full on blizzard conditions and you got to go outside and play, that was heaven. Yeah. I mean, it's fort building and and um, it's snowball fights and snowmen. Like it's, you, it's hours and hours. I was speaking to a friend of mine early this morning who said um, they were out with their boys uh, on the big snow day this weekend. Uh, and they didn't even look up for six hours those kids they were just digging and digging and creating and creating and you know in heaven with their their brightly um pinked up cheeks and just loving every minute of it so um, making memories yeah, absolutely yeah. absolutely that's beautiful um during these unique times that the world's facing if you have one bit of love to pass on to families out there what is that? You know, I think that there is a, a gift that has been handed to us in this mm. experience of COVID. And it's been a, a giant reset button. We were literally, uh, in my part of the world anyways, forced into our homes and forced back to our families. Mm. All of those structured activities canceled. The only thing that we had available to us was time and each other. And those are the core ingredients of life. That's, that's what makes the world go round. We are a social species. This is actually how we are meant to exist. Yeah. And so I would just really invite people to sit in the space of awareness around all of that, to know that these times that we're living through, they're not just a time to survive. They're a time for us to understand what it takes to thrive. And as we emerge through, um, you know, this time of challenge onto the other side of it all, to be thinking about very mindfully, what is it that you are racing back to? And what is it that actually does not serve you, does not serve your families, and does not serve your children? Mic drop. Yeah. That hits home for me. I know that mm. much and uh, yeah. I'm sure it would for you as well Absolutely. in this current season. For our listeners who want to learn more and follow you online, um, what's the best way to reach out, see your content and to hear more of your wisdom? Thank you. So Dr. Vanessa LaPointe, drvanessalapointe.com is where I am um, in terms of my website and you and I have lots of articles on there about boredom and play and 
and kids who are struggling to get off to school and all of that uh, good kind of stuff as as well as books and courses and other kinds of things. And I'm pretty active on social media, uh, on both Instagram and on Facebook. And uh, and really, uh, we've been posting about play a lot lately, because this is the answer to where it is that we all are right now. Um, and so just following along and um, hoping to offer parents and families inspiration to stay the course. Yeah, I love your Instagram TV stories. They're fantastic. Really awesome. good. Nice. Awesome. I hit home. What was the one this week? I was telling Lucas that we probably need a whole nother podcast for this, but we were talking about the the regressed child that mm. uh, the adult experiences. And yeah, I just think that is, yes, like I said, it would need a whole nother podcast for that. And also <laughs> what, the one um, about your child loving you back. Oh, yes. What was that? That free, The freedom. Yeah. The freedom within the relationship. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, We've mentioned that to a few people and they go, Oh, okay. Yep. <laughs> it's hits that mark for sure. But yeah. I'm sure like our listeners are going to get so much out of this. I know I have, we both have. Thank you. Um, we feel so blessed to be able to talk to you via Zoom today. And um, awesome. just thank you from the bottom of your hearts for all you do for us and your community. It's so inspiring and it makes me want to be a better dad and a better mm. operator and advocate for children. So thank you so much. Thank you. That's everything. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for another Play It Forward Worthy podcast. That was the incredible Dr. Vanessa Lapointe and Vanessa Ritson, my co-host. I'm sure you got so much out of it as I did. Please like, subscribe, and I look forward to you joining us again soon on the next Play It Forward Worthy podcast.